while you have been here on retreat this fall, <clears throat> you have mercifully been spared the um, presidential campaign <clears throat> for the worst part of it. And while I was listening to and reading some of the uh, comments that everyone was making, my old 60s political cynicism came back <laughs> and I realized that we in this country have a powerful conditioning to not even expect to hear the truth. And that's powerful conditioning. We don't even expect people to tell us the truth. Not just politicians. And if we can reflect just on just briefly on what the consequences of that are, how are we going to recognize the truth? Who's going to tell us? What sort of defensiveness does that set up in us? What sort of guardedness, apprehension? We don't have to look very far to see that much of the way we live, much of our conditioning, is based on the appearance of things. About 100% of what you see on TV is the appearance of things. The appearance of relationships, the appearance of all of life. What we say, what we hear, what we see, how we appear and present ourselves, our behavior, is geared to creating impressions that may or may not be true. Often are not. And it's become a very deep habit to present ourselves to others the way that we want to be seen, to be felt, to be known. And it may not be how we are inside, how we really feel about ourselves. We're willing to distort what we think, what we feel, what we believe, to be seen, to appear to be some other way. We have all been hurt many times by being deceived, by being mm, lied to, confused. And we have also hurt others in the same way, by not speaking the truth, by putting on appearances, by behaving in certain ways that we don't actually feel. 
And it's gotten so it's very difficult to recognize what the truth is from anyone else. It's also very difficult to recognize what our own truth is. We want to be known and seen one way. And that distorts our perception of ourselves. When we come on retreat, one of the things we see right off quick is things aren't what they appear. (laughs) We aren't quite who we thought we were or hope to be. And we begin, as we get in, and we start looking at our mind and our body and our relationships and memories and plans, we see that, in large part, our life is a pretty huge deception. And I'm sure all of you have seen ways that you live, ways that you behave, not quite grounded in who we really are, what we really feel. One of the things that we notice, one of the things that we see is that the truth is difficult to acknowledge. It's difficult to see, difficult to acknowledge to ourselves, and even more difficult to express to another to show by behavior, by speaking. And yet, it's what we come here for. In spite of our conditioning, we have an immense hunger for the truth. And you sit here and you walk here for three months, to begin to be able to recognize it. What is true for you right now? And it's difficult to even say what that is. Truthfulness is one of the paramis, one of the ten paramis that is developed in the course of practice. That the Buddha had, to, that the Bodhisattva had to develop to become a Buddha. I've heard it said that. When the, the ascetic Sumedha, many lifetimes ago, made the vow to become a Buddha, at that time he was, his mind was so pure that he could have become an enlightened being at that time. But he chose to postpone his own enlightenment, to live through innumerable eons of existences, to perfect all of the paramis so that he himself could become a Buddha to uh, continue the teachings or to offer the teachings for the elimination of suffering. And in the course of those 
hundreds of thousands of existences or lifetimes, eons and eons of taking rebirth in all planes of existence in many forms of life to learn the lessons he needed to. It's said that he broke all the precepts many times over, except not telling the truth. All the others broken many times, except he never lied. Give some indication of the power of truthfulness. Tonight I want to talk about truthfulness as a parami, but I want to talk about it from my own experience. When I asked for suggestions of what people would like to hear about a week or so ago, a lot of people would like to know what it's like to be a monk. Well, I'll share some stories. <clears throat> I want to talk about the, the, the stories that I tell tonight. I want to kind of frame them and have you look at these stories or listen to these stories from the point of view of the parami's truthfulness and determination of mind or resolution of mind, steadiness of mind. These are two paramis that I feel are really important in practice and get developed over the course of our practice, whether we consciously and actively work on them or if we just hang in there and do what's got to be done. We come to turning points in our practice where we have a choice to be truthful or not, or to act on what we know is true with determination. After some years of practice here in the States and doing retreats and being on staff and being involved in the scene, the Dharma scene here in the West, <clears throat> I actually came and did a three-month retreat in the, after about eight years. And I stayed on after that retreat for another, for that three months, for another seven months. So I stayed in, in retreat like this for ten months. The last three of those was with Sayadaw Upandita the first time he came to America in 1984. And that was a small retreat for about a dozen of us for three months. And we were here in the hall and Upandita came for the first time. And it was a grueling um, experience, as others have probably related. <clears throat> and At the end of that, I felt that I was pretty, I'd had enough. <laughs> I don't want to say I felt done, but I certainly had had enough. And I, I had the sense that that's it for my um, uh, intensive practice. Now I can get on with the rest of life and live happily ever after. And I returned to uh, Western Massachusetts where I was living at the time and 
started up my business again or continued my business, which was on hold, and fully expecting that that was the that was the extent of my intensive practice. And as soon as I returned to Western Massachusetts, I, I got some work and business took off like a rocket, and life was wonderful again. And um, as was my habit for many years prior to that, I always came in January and did a retreat for about two weeks when the staff take their retreat here. They close the center and they do a retreat. And again, after about four or five months of working, I came to take my traditional winter retreat of 10 or 12 days at this time. And in the middle of it, I just realized it it wasn't a thought, it wasn't a decision, it wasn't any anxiety. It just was a simple realization that I was not happy or there was a level of discontent that I hadn't noticed before in my life. I was happy in my work and my relationships and... Um, felt quite at ease and content with normal, middle-aged, middle-class life. And in some sense, I think that that contentment, that level of contentment, is really necessary before one actually feels the urge, the undeniable urge to seek something greater. And it started bubbling up as discontent with not my conditions of worldly conditions, but just my understanding of myself. And without focusing on it, it became clear that I had to continue practice. And given the conditions of in the States at the time, I said, I want to go to Asia. I want to live in a Buddhist culture where the whole culture is Buddhist. I want to live as a monk for a period of time. And I want to practice intensively until I don't want to practice anymore. And those were my conditions. And I didn't know how long it would take, but I thought it might be a year. So when I went, when I finished that retreat, I went home and... I had been in a relationship with a woman for some years at that point. And as painful as it was for me, and more painful for her, I told her what I had to do. And it's not easy to tell someone that you're going to, that you love and you've been in relationship with, that you're going to leave and go do your own thing and you don't know how long it's going to take, and please don't wait. And that's not easy. But she was very understanding, and she uh, appreciated my endeavor to, to awaken and um, wanted to support me however she could. And uh, 
we went through a process over the next ten months of separating consciously, as conscious as we could. And in my mind at the time, there was tremendous doubt and wavering and confusion and what am I doing and why am I doing and what do I expect and where am I going and why. And There was that level of debate in my mind. And underneath it was a continual acknowledgement of the truth. I need to do this. I need to find out what's going on in this thing, life. And that was some truth and determination in my practice. Not, not just uh, assertiveness, but something that kept me on the path of going through this separation and closing down my business and disappointing business partners and, and um, doing what needed to be done. And so I went to um, Asia, went to, went to Burma. And I had thought at the time that I would go to Burma to practice for a few months. And uh, then I would go to Thailand and live in the forest like friends of mine had done some years before. And, uh, you know, stayed for a year or two and, and then come back. Well, I went to Burma and I started, I knew when I went to Asia that I was going for one purpose only, to practice. I wasn't interested in travel, I wasn't interested in living there, I wasn't interested in study or anything, except I just wanted to practice. So I went to Burma, I went to the meditation center with Upandita um, State, and um, I just said, I'm here to practice. So when you go there, that's all you can do anyway, and uh, there's, there's not much choice. So I, I began practice, and I was determined. There was just, just, there just wasn't anything that was going to sway me from practice. There wasn't anything that could catch my attention. And so, being very diligent and very gung-ho, um, within a few days, my practice was in some place that was completely unfamiliar to me. In fact, um, there was some progression. I could see that I was getting, you know, my mindfulness was getting better and I was beginning to notice things in a way that I hadn't in all my 10 months, or at that point, 10 years and 10 months of practice here. And there was daily improvement, so to speak, so I thought. And after about two weeks of enthusiasm and energy and determination and just right in there, I went to report every day. And one day, practice just fell apart after about two weeks. It was completely bonkers. It just did not compute. It was totally unfamiliar. I was judging myself mercilessly that there was just... Uh, I didn't know how to even talk about it. Yeah, it, it was it was it was just not good. It was very bad practice. <laughs> very, you know, like after after a month, you feel like you're back at day one. Well, 
It was even before day one. But we had to go report every day. So I went to um, Sayadaw at my appointed time. And for some reason that day he was in, not in his public room, but he was in his office. And it's a much cozier room. It's more homey and comfortable there. And I went in and I bowed and I said, Sayadaw, I don't even want to come to report today. And he just sat there and I said, my, you know, I, um, my practice is not very good. I'll come back tomorrow. <laughs> and he said, and I was really distraught. I was just totally raw and vulnerable. And it just, up till this point, I'd had 14 days of continuing approved practice. And it was wonderful. And suddenly it was all over. And he looked at me and with his piercing eyes and um, he just said, well, what's going on? And I said, I, I can't tell you. I don't even know how to talk about it. And he said, well, in his most loving way, he said, well, just tell me the truth. Just tell me exactly what you experience without censoring anything, without judging it, without, without trying to impress me, without thinking it's good, without thinking it's bad. He said, just be like a child and tell me exactly what you experience. So it was, I was really confronted with, what am I going to say? And so I just dropped into this really trusting, childlike, simple place. And I told them what was going on how chaotic and whatever, whatever I was experiencing, I told him. And I was just ready to collapse from sensitive vulnerability. And, uh. and when I told him this, and it was translated, he just sat there and the biggest smile came on his face. He was just grinning from ear to ear. And he was so happy. He said, I'm so happy for you. He says, this is what I've been waiting to hear. (laughs) And I said, and he continued, he said, sometimes what yogis think is good practice, teachers might not think so. And sometimes what yogis think is really bad practice, teachers know is really different. And I got it at that point. The whole of practice is to acknowledge the truth. Not what you think you should be experiencing. Not what you've heard about the Dhamma. Not what you've read. Not what you want to happen. Not what you think is good practice. But just the truth. And it was a profound lesson. From then on, in my next five years, I felt like I could tell the truth. And there was somebody there who could hear it. And that's a powerful connection to have with someone. That you can tell them exactly what's going on for you. And they'll understand. And they'll believe you. He told me later that what happens at that stage of practice is that the mind goes straight. 
It's like the mind cannot be deceptive. You cannot not tell the truth. You will speak in the most simple way about what's happening. You can't even try to complexify things. You can't talk obscurely. You can't speak of your experience obscurely. The mind has to go straight. So I continued with practice. And my sense of trusting myself really was was enhanced a lot by that. And when I had gotten there, I told Sayadaw that I would like to ordain. And he said, well, why don't you just wait a while and until your practice gets good? And I said, all right, well, when will that be? Well, he said, you'll know, you'll know. Well, I had no idea what good practice was anyway. But after about four months, Sayadaw was going to come to America to teach and I wanted to ordain before he left so I told him that my practice was pretty good (laughs) and he said okay all right and he set a date for ordination and the way the way it's done in the monastery is that in the evening of one day you go and you get ordained as a novice uh, a junior so to speak and in the morning, you get your full ordination as a monk. So on the night that uh, I was to get ordained as a novice, someone came to my room and uh, said, oh, Saito wants to see you now. And so you walk up to Saito's and uh, he says, are you ready to get ordained? Yes. And he says, okay, well, you need to get your head shaved. And he says, but you have to do a meditation when you get your head shaved. You have to contemplate different parts of the body as being impermanent and insubstantial and nothing to be attached to. And he said, think about the hair of the head, the hair of the body, the nails, teeth, and bones, or whatever it was. So I said, all right, right. Went to get my head shaved, and it was a big deal. It's a big celebration. All the other foreigners were there, and a bunch of Burmese monks and and nuns and people were there watching, get your head shaved. And so, of course, I forgot all about getting, doing the meditation. And I was just uncomfortably squatting in this pool of water while they were shaving my head. And as the hair was falling, my hair was all falling in front of me, it suddenly came to me how much suffering my hair had caused me. It really, I'm, think about it. How much hassle the hair is. You know, it's got to look right, it's the wrong color, it's the wrong shape, it's too long, it's too short. And my parents gave me a lot of hassles about it being too long. And all of these memories just came into the mind, and I realized what a relief! No hair. <laughs> Simple, but profound. <laughs> so anyway, I got uh, my head shaved and went back to Sidon, and he offered me the robes. So he said, now here are your robes, you have to put these on. So there were some Burmese monks there, so they take us into another room. And 
it's where you begin to get involved. You, get, you begin to get into the community. They take your clothes off and they put your robes on you. Because, I don't know how to put on robes. It's just a piece of cloth that they wrap around you in some special way. And, then, and it's the beginning of feeling connected. And I went back to get ordained and Sayadaw asked me, what, um, what day were you born? And I said, oh, January 29th, blah, blah, blah. And he said, no, I mean, what day of the week? And in, in Asia, that's how they determine what your name will be by the day of the week. And I said, well, I don't know. And he said, well, I'll just have to make up a name. So he came up with the name Buddha Rakita, meaning one who is protected by the Buddha. And I was very happy with that name. There's a couple of stories about Buddha Rakita in the, in the text. But one of the things that a novice has to do is give away or put away and give away everything that they own. Because everything you use, a monk, use as a monk has to be given to you as a monk. You can't kind of appropriate your own things for use. So everything in my room I had to give away. Money, clothes, flashlight, notebooks, pens, pencils, cups, everything. So you give it away. And of course somebody turns around and offers everything back to you when you need it. But <laughs> Anyway, I, the next morning I went and there's a formal, uh, an hour-long thing of getting ordained. As soon as you get ordained, the world is a different place. People start bowing to you. And it's a, it's a strange experience to have people bow to you. And, of course, initially I took it very personally. Like, well, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> This is not the proper response. <laughs> and after your ordination, people give you things. Lots of gifts. You get lots of gifts. Robes and, and bowls and food. And In the morning you get food. Um, everything you need is a monk. Uh, soap and toothpaste and all those things. And you're just walking out of your ordination with this big basket of stuff. It's just, and you really, you really feel special. And I was really, after four months of practice, got pretty excited and pretty, pretty disturbed by all of the events of the day and couldn't really practice very well for the rest of the day. So I wrote a letter back to my ex-girlfriend, 20-page letter on what it's like to be ordained. And at the end of the day, I was just so beaming and so happy to be a monk that I went to see Sayadaw. And I went into his, uh, his house, and he was in his inner room when I couldn't see him. I couldn't see him, but I told this attendant that I had come to see him. And I waited around like you do in Asia. And then finally, he just said, well, well you can go in and see Sayadaw now. So I went in, and Sayadaw was 
in his bedroom with a couple of businessmen talking about something. And I was really nervous. I just had, I mean, your first day in robes is like, you're not sure you can even keep them on. They kind of, <laughs> they kind of fall off and you don't, you're not very comfortable with them. And so I went in and I just told him, I bowed, and he didn't, I didn't even have a translator at the time. I just told him that this is something I'd really wanted to do, and it was the happiest day of my life. And think about how some of the happy events in your life, whatever they are. And getting ordained was my happiest day of my life. And Sayadaw just looked at me and said, yes, yeah, we'll carry on. That's, that's what it is, just carry on, practice. But there's a real sense of camaraderie among monks. And I, I expect for nuns also, but I don't have that experience, but among, among monks. And everyone becomes very helpful because your robes are falling off and they, they stop you and they help you put on your robes and they ask after you and they check to see that you're okay and you've got food in your bowl and this and that and they take care of you. They really take care of you well. As soon as you become a monk, everything is taken care of for you. You just have to breathe and get there. <laughs> and I really began to feel how important it is to be connected to a tradition, to understand that what I was going through had been going on continuously for 2,500 years, since the time of the Buddha. That men and boys and men, and for a large part of that time women also, had been initiated into a group of like-minded people who really value practice. And that's powerful. Really powerful. It was really obvious when, in December of each year, at the Mahasi Meditation Center, they have a festival for about four or five days. It's called the Mahasi Festival. And it's the second weekend of December. So around the second weekend of December. And at that time, they, they, they turn out everybody all the yogis at the meditation center, and all of the monks in Burma who teach this particular practice, and there's about 400 of them who have their own meditation centers throughout Burma, they come to Rangoon, and they have a festival for about four or five days, and each one of them brings about 10 of their supporters. So there's several thousand people around. There's a lot of guests come from in Rangoon. So there's about five, about 400 of the most eminent monks of Burma who teach meditation and about four or five thousand of their most avid supporters. And it's a festival that you can hardly believe. There are Dharma talks continuously from like six in the morning to like ten at night broadcast over loudspeakers. <laughs> One of the most impressive or most touching moments for me was when in the morning we have breakfast at 5.30 and in December it's dark. It's still pretty dark then. 
And monks, when they go anywhere, always line up according to seniority. Those who've been monks longest go first. Those who've been monks least go last. And in the morning, they would, all the monks would be standing around about a couple hundred yards from the dining room, and they would start calling out ages so that those monks who were that age would go first. And they'd start with monks who had been monks for 60 years, 80 years old, and a couple of people would go shuffling off into the dust. Dark. And, you know, then it's down to 59 years, and another one goes off, and 58, and down to the 50s, a few people are shuffling off at each age in a line. And then when they get down to the 30 years, there's a lot of monks who are 50 years old who are teaching. And it's really impressive. It's really touching to feel connected to that group of people. They don't allow Burmese monks there with less than 10 years. And here I was with about six months (laughs) as a monk at the end of the line, really feeling quite privileged to be amongst that group of people. And we were joking the foreign monks there were joking. We wondered how many fully enlightened beings were there. So we went to ask Sayadaw. (laughs) He wouldn't say. He probably didn't know. But I began to get a sense of what it means to take refuge in the Sangha. We take refuge in the Sangha here, and it's taking refuge among ourselves, within ourselves, within all beings who practice. When it's in a setting like that, you really get a sense of taking refuge in everybody since the time of the Buddha. Everybody who practices. Monks, nuns, lay people. Not just living now, but formally. In all planes of existence. After I'd practiced for about a year, I was practicing Vipassana for about a year, having survived the uh, hot season and the rainy season, and people coming and going. One of the monks, one of the Burmese monks who could speak some English, said to me, did you ever, I mean, do do, do do you practice without speaking? And I said, oh, Most every day I have occasion to speak to someone for something. And he said, well, you know, he said, it's really helpful if you don't speak in your practice. He says, I've I've tried, he says, I've done some of that practicing without speaking. And I thought, well, that's, yeah, that's a good idea. Maybe I should try that. So I said, for for the next three days, I'm going to try not to speak at all. So I made a determination. I started to understand that resolution and determination of mind really supports practice. So I said, all right, for three days I'm not going to talk. Well, 
there was some occasion on each of those three days to talk. Some guest came, some somebody asked me questions. Somehow I had to talk those three days. And at the end of those three days I said, well, maybe I should try another four days just to make it an even week. So I took a vow to not speak for the next four days. And because I had such a bad time the first three days, I, I really quite consciously said, all right, I'm not going, I really don't want to talk for the next four days, and made a determination in my mind not to. I don't recall whether I did or not speak during those four days. And it was sometime later, several, sometime later, that friends were coming from the States, Joseph and Sharon, and a bunch of people were coming to practice for a few months. And when they came, the day they came, oh, I was real happy to see him, and I was talking to him and uh, chattering away, getting the news from the States and what's going on. And one of the other monks who had been there with me during that period of time, foreign monks, he came up to me and said, oh, I see you're talking again. And I said, yeah, why? What's going on? I mean, yeah. He said, you know, you haven't spoken for six weeks. And it didn't quite, I didn't realize the power of a determined mind. You make a determination, you set your mind on a course, and it happens. When the mind is clear and concentrated, things happen. It's not like you have to arouse yourself to do it. You don't have to arouse energy to do it. The mind is determined. The mind is resolute. The mind is fixed. And he said, you know, you haven't been speaking for six weeks. And it wasn't... I just didn't realize that I was really into my practice. So I began to get an idea about, oh, determination of mind is pretty important. And when you go to this monastery, they say, you know, you begin with no more than four hours of sleep. So first day, four hours of sleep, pretty tired in the morning. And after a couple of weeks, it was pretty uh, easy to get up after four hours. <clears throat> One day my alarm didn't work, I don't know just what, but I overslept by an hour. And this was after a couple of months of practice. And when I went to report to Sayadaw that day, that day, out of the months I'd been there, he asked me, how many hours did you sleep last night? <laughs> I wanted to explain how I had been diligent every day except last night. But you, you, don't, you don't explain to Sayadaw. You tell the truth. So I said, five hours. And he said, he just shook his head in, in apparent disgust. <laughs> I got the message. Telling the truth is very important. So, after about a year or so of practice, Sayadaw asked me if I'd like to practice metta, if I'd like to practice doing, developing the Brahma Viharas to, to develop jhanas, or deep absorptions, concentrations. So I, I didn't really want to. I wanted to keep practicing Vipassana. And so for a few months, I kept saying, no, 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 I want to practice Vipassana. And after a couple of weeks, he'd ask me again, wouldn't you like to practice metta? No, 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 I don't. And then he was going traveling in Burma. He said, I'm going traveling in Upper Burma. Would you like to come with me? And I said, no, 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 I don't want to. I want to stay in practice. And I didn't 
I didn't know it, but I was de- developing then determination, resolution of mind, just to stay, stay there, not get distracted from task at hand. But it was after a while, after know, 15 months or something, I did decide to do metta practice to, to try to develop uh, deep concentration. And after some initial weeks of, of experimenting and playing and reaching some, some levels of absorption, whatever they might be, I like to sometimes think of them as jhanas, and I would talk about them as jhanas, but Sayadaw was never one to give any type of confirmation about anything. You know, you might use the word jhana, but he never would use it back. <laughs> so, so, one of the things that you learn to do in, in, in developing deep absorptions is you learn to uh, develop your determination of mind. And you do it by, there, is, there are four levels of absorption, and, and just for the sake of uh, ease, I'll call them jhanas. First jhana, second jhana, third jhana, fourth jhana, increasingly refined states of mind and being and deep concentration. And one of the things you learn to do is to shift between one absorption and another, to get really proficient so that the mind gets really flexible, really precise. And so after you've learned these, these experienced these four absorptions, then you start playing games with them. And society would say, okay, now we're going to play jhana games. And you say, now for the next couple of days, I want you to practice going up and down the scale. Go from first jhana to second to third to fourth to third to second to first. And so, you know, spend five minutes in each one. So you, you try to do it. And you, you make a determination, this is what I want to do at the beginning of the sitting, and then you just sit, do your metta, and hope that it happens. Mm-hmm. And sometimes it does. And after you get proficient at going up and down the scales, then he says, now I want you to try skipping. I want you to go first jhana to third jhana, fourth jhana to second jhana. And you think, goodness Lord, how am I going to do that? So. You just make a determination in the mind, and after a while, things happen, just like you say. And it's not from making anything happen. The way to do a determination is you make the determination, and you forget all about it. And you just go back and do your practice. Pervading metta, may all beings be free of harm and suffering, maybe, without any attempt at accomplishing what, your mind, what you have set your mind to do. The first time Sayadaw asked me to do a leap, not just a, not the scales and not a skip, but a leap from first jhana to fourth jhana, I just said, this is ridiculous. I can't possibly, I can't even imagine how you're supposed to do that. But I said, I'll do the determination anyway. And I sat down and said, well, May, may I uh, attain first jhana and, and jump to fourth jhana. And I, I fully did not expect anything to happen. And as soon as I closed my eyes, it happened. 
I really understood then what I begin to I mean I really understood what the power of determination is it is not willful action it's not doing anything other than setting the course of the mind and then letting it happen and I'd seen it in just wanting to get to Asia but then I begin to see it really closely in developing these levels of absorption. And these may or may not be jhanas, please don't. And not only for going up and down the scales and jumping and skipping, but for periods of time where you would make a determination to enter the jhana within a minute, to stay for as long as you wanted, for a minute or two or five or an hour or whatever, until you could do all that you determined to do, you weren't considered proficient. And so they would, they would just, month after month, you just have to perfect your ability to set your mind determinedly, resolutely on a task until you can make it happen. The key to developing determination of mind is to not be attached to the results. To set the mind with power, resolution, and determination and forget the results. And it seems like a contradiction in terms, but in fact it's only when you cannot be concerned with the results that happens. other stories to tell. Mm. Mm. I want to talk about hmm. one thing that was real important is when monks, when you're ordained as a monk, you're not allowed to handle money. In fact, there are rules to cover everything you do. Everything you say, speak, where you look, how you look, what you talk about, what you eat, when you eat, how you eat, who you eat with. Everything about your life has a rule, or many rules, to do to guide you. And initially, it can be an awful burden of trying to figure out the rules and trying to keep them. But eventually, it gets to be rather smooth. Except money. Having lived in the West for 35 years, we're very, we have a very intense relationship with money. And when you become a monk, you have to give it up. Well, I gave it up initially to someone who just held it for me. Anytime I wanted something, I would just ask him, you know, or just tell him, I need a, and he would go get it and give it to me. After about a year, I, I found out that that's not, that's also not okay. What you really, you really do have to give up your money. And I was in Burma, and, and I mean, I had enough money to get back to the States. I get an air ticket back to the States. And at one point, I just said, well, if I'm going to be a monk, I've got to give up my money. And I just gave it up. I told the guy who had the money, I said, get rid of the money. I don't want it. I don't need it. I'm going to be totally 
proper, so to speak, a proper monk. And that is really hard to do, to trust that support will be there, that what you need will be provided for. And in fact, for the next four years as a monk, that was after the first year, for the next four years, did not give one thought to money. And think about your life. Think about what your life would be like to not have to think about money for four years. Not what you're going to get, when you're going to get it, or anything. And recognize that what you need, you can let someone know. If you need something, you can tell them, I need something. And it's up to them. If they want to offer it to you, they will. If they don't, that's evidently you don't need it. Really drop into a place of checking out what you really need. And we don't need much. We really don't need much to get by. But in Burma, people are so supportive of monks that they, if they even get a hint that you need something, they'll scramble to get it for you. And so you really have to look in yourself and say, what do I want? What do I need? How do I express this in such a way that I don't you know, compel people to support you? Because you, you can learn how to get lots if you want. It's real easy. You just, you just mention anything and people will be happy to bring it. But it really makes you reflect carefully on what is it that I need to support practice? How many sets of robes do you need? How many books? How much this? How much that? How much food? How much special this or special that? And for the next four years, wherever I had to go, and I had to fly several places, to Australia, to the States, to Thailand a couple of times, Malaysia several times, all that was provided. People are just so happy to support, um, support you in practice. After I'd been in Burma for some three or some three or four years, I was quite well known then. The Mahasi Meditation Center is the most predominant monastery in Burma. Monks in Burma are at the top of the social order, so to speak. They are the most venerated people in the country. The Mahasi Center is the most popular, well-known, and wealthy monastery in Rangoon. Saito Upandita was the chief monk or the head monk at that particular monastery, and I was his uh, eldest, eldest, and for a long time, only foreign monk. That put me pretty up there in Burmese eyes. And after I'd been there for three or four years, a lot of people were coming to see me and bringing, I mean, just tons of stuff, more robes than I could even pack away. And just tons, I mean, just lots of stuff, just wanting to support my being there. Well, to be quite honest, 
I thought I was pretty important. I got quite mm, inflated with who I was and my importance being there and what it indicated to others for me to be there and to be in that role of um, bestowing benevolence on people. Because they, they would come and they would get great happiness and joy offering anything. Food or robes or whatever. And I would speak to them in a little bit of Burmese and a little English and encourage them to practice. And yet the whole relationship, the whole being a monk is playing a role. Being in a role relationship with everyone, with students, supporters, with teachers, with other monks. And in fact, any personality that you have gets in the way. I have a lot of personality. It got in the way. And after some years of that, I realized that I had some work to do at the personality level. I had some emotions that weren't being uh, dealt with. I had some interest in non-role relationships or personality-based relationships. And I didn't want to be a Burmese. And the longer I stayed in Burma, the more Burmese I came, the more Burmese I became. And I could see that what was happening was that I was actually being conditioned to become Burmese rather than to be free. And in Burma, monks being the most respected, it's very difficult to leave. And this is one of the cautions I would have for anyone who goes to Asia to ordain is it's really easy to live at the top of the heat comfortably as a monk or as a nun even. And I began to see that actually my practice got quite sloppy after about four years and that I was not paying attention to the rules so carefully. I wasn't doing so much of my own practice. was pretty arrogant, very inflated with self-importance. They had elevated me to being the monk who leads all the other monks in the monastery on alms round for a year. And, you know, when you're at the head of a line of a hundred monks walking through the suburbs of Rangoon and getting offered food, it's pretty inflating. Pretty difficult to acknowledge that to yourself, too. Very difficult to actually leave it and say, wait a minute, this is not what I came for. And after about four years, I began to just not feel like I was living the truth, living my truth. And painful as it was, I chose to leave Burma, not to leave the monkhood at that time, but to leave Burma to bring myself down a couple of notches and to go someplace where I wasn't so um, 
tolerated, venerated up there, held up for, you know, public, whatever it is. So as as monks do with their with their preceptors, with those who ordain them, you don't make your own decision. All decisions are made by your preceptor. And so I went to Sayadaw and I told him that I wanted to leave Burma, that I would like his permission to leave Burma and to go to Thailand and practice. And he said no. So I went back to my place and practiced some more and after some weeks or something I still knew that I wasn't being honest and I went to Sayadaw again and I asked him if I could have permission to leave Burma and after some discussion he again said no. And I went back and I practiced for some more weeks and months and I realized that I was really not honest. And I went for the third time. And in traditional Buddhism, the third time, after the third time, that's it. And I went and I asked him the third time that I would like to leave, like permission to leave Burma, and he said no. And I told him that I was going anyway. And that's something you don't do. But it was my truth. I mean, I recognized that I needed to leave that situation to develop. And so I told him that I was leaving. And he was very upset. And after some time, I met him and I did leave, went to Thailand. And after some time, when he came through Thailand to travel, teach abroad, um, I went with him and traveled with him for a few months. Later I returned to the States and as things progressed I decided to disrobe and I wanted to do it with him. He had ordained me and I had been with him for five years and even though we'd had a slight split after about four years, I wanted him to dis- disrobe me, to, to, to um, let me out of the monkhood and he came here a year ago for a two-month retreat, and I spent the time with him. And I told him at the beginning of the retreat that I wanted to disrobe. And we carried on discussions for two months, as best we could. And you don't really process, you know how we like to process things in a relationship? You don't really process with Sayadaw. You you can have discussions, everything goes through a translator, but as best I could, I tried to tell him where I was coming from, why I was, why, I'd ordained, why I had ordained, why I had practiced, why I felt like leaving. And he said, no, you, uh, I don't want you to disrobe. And I said, well, Sayadaw, the conditions here in America are not very supportive of monks. And it's my karma to be here and da-da-da. And he said, I don't want to hear talk about conditions and karma. I want to hear talk about determination and energy. And I said, right. Conditions, karma, determination and energy. And on the last day, on the 4th of July, the last day he was here, I 
went to him in the morning and said, I want you to disrobe me today. And he said, please think about your future. And I said, I have. So I went and I had lunch with him, and after lunch, disrobing takes about, what, maybe three minutes. All you have to do is say to someone who understands, I no longer want to be a monk, I want to be considered as a layman. You know, the, as, long as, they under, as long as one other person understands that, and that you're not crazy and they're not crazy, it is an accomplished fact. It took me more than two hours to get to that stage with Saido. But, in fact, I did tell him, and he did uh, lead me through a, a very lengthy uh, process of disrobing. And it was very sad, and it was very exciting. And then after about six months, the whole bottom fell out. And I realized that, indeed, readjusting to lay life and living in the West is going to be difficult. And it's been about a year and a half now. And um, now I understand that, indeed, it is going to take about five years. And if I had more time, I would speak more. But, well, please tell the truth. And, <laughs> and fix your mind on what is really important to you. So why don't we, oh, why don't we walk for a while? <laughs>